belong, become, believe. You're listening to Grace Church of Northwest Arkansas podcast. The message for June 26, 2022 is called The Cost of Greatness. The speaker is John Ray and the location is Clap Auditorium, Mount Sequoia in Fayetteville, Arkansas. Um, welcome again. If you're watching on Facebook or listening on the podcast, my name is John Ray. This is Grace Church of Northwest Arkansas. We are really glad you're here this morning. Jesus calls the authority to redefine church words, chemical words, ideas. Um, maybe one of the most revolutionary things Jesus ever said was, you have heard it said to you, but I said. And he said something that redefines or expounds or expands or changes the very, the very nature of the way people were taught to think about God, to think about faith with that. And so Jesus is, is almost reckless in his, in his changing, his redefining of words. And maybe one of the most powerful words that he does that with, and it is arguable, and I gotta tell you, I was immersed in this one scripture, so you know, you know, whatever you're into at the time, you think, oh, this is the thing, right? Well, I'm into this thing right now. I'm going, oh my gosh, can you need to redefine this word? Is this the most incredible way he's ever to redefine a word? So just temper my enthusiasm with your knowing looks at that. Um, but it's this word great. What does it mean to be first or great or best? Like, who, who's the best athlete you can think of? Patrick Mahomes. Yeah, right? I mean, he, he is great. He, he is definitely gives a definition of great. Who else? Like, what would you think, like, business-wise or something? Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs, right? <laughs> Steve Jobs redefined the whole industry, but right? he really did something significant there. He made a company first in a way that we can understand with that. What about like entertainment? Lizzo. Lizzo, come on. She's changing things up, right? With that. But we have these ideas, these impressions of what it is great. And then Jesus steps into the scene and does something radical in redefining that. So we're going to look at this text. And, and it's a long text. I want you to stick with me. If you have your Bibles, we're going to start at Mark 9, verse 33. And we're going to read through all the way into chapter 10. It's going to seem like it's a series of unaffiliated vignettes. It's going to, it may feel like, oh, wait, why, wait, how did we get, why are we going? But hold with me, because I think they all relate to this question of what is great. What makes a person or a group, a place, great? So starting verse 33. Then they came to Capernaum, and Jesus was inside the house. He asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they were silent. For on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. After he sat down, he called the twelve and he said to them, if anyone wants to be first, he must be the last of all and servant of all. He took a little child and had him stand among them. Taking him in his arm, he said to them, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. 
John said to him, and again, this is a little bit of a neck jerk because I don't know that this question necessarily follows what Jesus just said, but you can tell maybe John was distracted and he was thinking about something else and he just blurted it out. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, because no one who does a miracle in my name will able soon afterward to say anything bad about me. For whoever is not against us is for us. For I tell you the truth, whoever gives you a cup of water, because you bear Christ's name, will never lose his reward. If anyone causes one of these little ones to believe in me, who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a huge millstone tied around his neck, thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better to enter life crippled than to have two hands and go into hell to the unquenchable fire. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better to enter life lame than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better to be th- it is better to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell, where the worm never dies and the fire is never quenched. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? Have salt in yourselves. Be at peace with each other. We get into chapter 10 here. Then Jesus left that place and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan River. Again, the crowds gathered to him, and again, as it was custom, he taught them. Then some of the Pharisees came, and to test him, they asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of dismissal and divorce her. But Jesus said to them, He wrote this commandment for you because of your hard hearts. But from the beginning of creation, he he made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, and and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. We've heard that many times our whole life, right? In the house, once again, the disciples asked him about this. So he told them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. But now the people were bringing the little children to him to touch, but the disciples scolded those who brought them. But when Jesus saw this, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come unto me and do not stop them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God, like a child, will never enter it. After After he took children in his arms, he placed his hand on them and blessed them. So, a lot happening here, right? Blessing children, cutting off feet, fires that never die, certificates of divorce. Kind of seems like a hodgepodge, a pastiche of Jesus' sayings that the author of Mark kind of cut and pasted together in trying to, to relate everything to people what Jesus said. I don't think that's the case, though. I think there is a definite narrative flow. I think what Jesus is doing, what the author is doing of this text, is demonstrating the the greatness that the disciples were arguing about. Remember, this whole thing starts with the disciples arguing, who is the greatest? And Jesus tells them, well, the one who's greatest among you is the one who's going to serve. All right, well, great, Jesus, cool. Serve in the army? serve pasta on Tuesday night? Serve in my tennis game? Like, what does it mean to serve? What, it, what, it, what, it, what are you talking about? 
And, and as Jesus does, then Jesus goes not only into a series of, of parables or vignettes or whatever, but he demonstrates it. He physically walks it out. This is the cool thing about Jesus. He shows us. He doesn't just tell us. He shows us with this. And so we have these series of encounters that the author, divinely inspired, saw, because I, I don't believe that Jesus just had, like, servant week. <laughs> right? Jesus' ministry wasn't, okay, hey, this week we're going to talk about leadership. So, let me tell you. Here's all the things you need to know about leadership. Okay, next week is servant week. Next week we're going to get to be servants, right? No, it's not like that. Like, this was an ongoing elemental theme of Jesus' person in ministry was this flipping around the idea of what it meant to be great. And so the author of Mark kind of went through, and as he sees, he puts this in here, he's like, what, are, what were those? Oh, yeah, that thing, and this is what Jesus, and he, and he helps us as readers put those things together so we can see what Jesus was talking about, demonstrated there. Um, and what we see from the start is that Jesus gives us a new and radically different, different definition of what it means to be great with this. He turns it on its head from the way that we are from birth taught to think about greatness. Jesus is confronting that and turning it around. And what we see is that being great in the kingdom is not like being great in the world. It involves using the power we have for those who don't. Making room for others by giving up our place and making sure that those who don't have a place at the table get one. And not just get one, but get a good one. That's what greatness is in a nutshell in the kingdom. You see, and then he goes on to demonstrate this. We, we have in our society a very ill-informed view of greatness. Look, we can say definitively that Patrick Mahomes is a great quarterback. Right? Because he competes on the field against who? Yeah. Other, other quarterbacks. Right? Other quarterbacks. He is a great quarterback. He has proved it against other quarterbacks. But that, where that happens and how that happens is, is not how real life It would mean a lot less to call Patrick Mahomes great at a be a totally different deal. You could you could still definitively say the guy's got skills, but he really hasn't proved anything by beating me because I'm not a good quarterback. I'm definitely not anywhere near that skill level. So it wouldn't necessarily help his reputation by beating me. Here's the thing, though. In life, so many of us, it's a natural tendency for human beings, but especially especially among males, I'll just go ahead and say it, among this, this kind of macho thing that I've got to prove myself by being
instead of seeking to prove themselves by continually going up against bigger and better codified in our society. It becomes part of our structure. And so those who, who can't compete are held down. And people use that to exalt themselves, even though there's, there's no sense of fairness in it at all. There's no sense of justice in it at all. And so we have a society that instead of striving to be better, is, is trying to just look good, trying to have the trappings of power by pushing other people down, keeping other people down, stepping on other people to get higher with it. And we see this so much in our society that, that the strongest, yeah, they rise to the top, but they do it often at the expense of others who never had a chance never got even a chance to compete with it. They want to limit that pool of people they have to compete against so that they can get an automatic W is what happens with that. And so they get it down. They force them down. And you think about this. There's, there's this idea of ascendancy for greatness in our society. It starts with school, right? The second grader looks down on the kindergartner. The teenager looks down on the person that's not quite hit puberty there, right? We look at it in business. Oh, I've got the better office. I'm in the better place, right? Like my greatness is exemplified by I get more and better. Other people have to have less and fewer with it. You know, it's, it's exemplified in ranks in the army, positions in business, the industrial educational complex where we just compete people through with that. Not to mention society. My race is better than yours. My gender is better than yours. My nationality is better than yours. My state is better than yours. Whatever it is. We seek to exert our greatness by holding others down, by diminishing others with that. So what does Jesus do with this? What does Jesus do? Well, so here's the thing. Jesus turns it all on its head, and this is surprising, because the most surprising thing about God is not that God is powerful, or, or that even God is. Most people recognize there is some form of deity out there. From the earliest time, we see people worshiping, naming deities. And, the, and, and from that earliest time, we see them ascribing power, significant power to these deities, or this deity. So it's not surprising that God is, or God is powerful. We don't expect that. The most surprising thing is that God is good to all. Not just my tribe, not just my group, not just those of us who, who, who somehow propitiate this God with our morality or our sacrifices or action, but God is good to all. It's shocking to us that God is not threatened. That God is not diminished if we don't give God what we think God wants. God is not diminished. God's not threatened by us. It's surprising that God does not prefer. This is really shocking to us when we think about it. 
that God does not prefer the rich, the powerful, the good-looking, the lucky, the happy, the whole in mind or body. No, the most surprising thing is that we, that we can ever understand is that when we say God is love, we understand that that means everyone. This is shocking to us. That God loves me, but he also loves everybody. It's shocking enough that God loves me. It's doubly shocking that God loves everybody, and, and even more so that God loves everybody without exception. This, this, is the, this is the thing that allows Jesus to change the definitions. This is what he's expounding on, is this kernel of truth of God's great goodness and love. It has to be reinforced time and time again. We have to practice it. This is not something I'm just going to tell you on a Sunday morning. You're going to walk home and go, oh, that's great. Got it solved. Good. Check. Got that. Whole world changed. No, this takes a long time to see. It takes a lifetime maybe more to sink in for us to practice with that. That's why I'm so grateful every Sunday that you choose to show up here. I need you here as part of my practice of reminding myself this. I can't do this alone. Nobody gets this message and then is able to practice it by themselves against the tide of society. You can't. You're not going to do that. You're not going to win. It takes all of us reminding ourselves, encouraging one another, witnessing to each other to do this thing. Everything in his head. And here's the three specific examples. This is why I think these, these vignettes, these um, pericopes are, are put together. Is one, in the way that Jesus interacts with children, we're showed the way we interact with children, the way we interact with those who are significantly different from us, and the way we interact with those who don't hold power. That's what's being demonstrated here, so I'll, I'll tell. So first, the way we interact with children, right? This starts and ends with Jesus interacting with children. Starts with telling them, hey, you have to become like the children, let the children in. Stop. It ends with, bring the children to me. It starts with, hey, just allow them. It ends with, bring them to me, blessing them, doing this. Why? Why is it so important? Well, children weren't seen in this society, in almost all ancient societies, and still in some societies today. Children didn't achieve a certain, even viability until they reached a certain age. Certain cultures wouldn't name children until they reached their second birthday because of just high infant mortality with that. Children were just not appreciated. Now, sure, listen, mothers have always loved their babies. Okay, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying there was never a family um, affection that was here. 
But I'm just talking about society in general and the overarching theme is children were seen more as a means to an end than an end in and of themselves. They were the way you were going to carry on your family name. They were the way you were going to, um, you know, have workers on your farm. They were the way that, that they were someone who's going to provide for you in your, in your old age with that. And until they reached the age that they could do those things, they were more tolerated than anything else. And Jesus is turning that on his head. And, and in our day and age, while that may seem foreign, the principle is the same with a lot of what we see with people with, who, are, who are living with disability, experiencing disability with it. Or whoever is vulnerable in our society that we think Who do we think of in our society that, that it's, a, it's a negative ROI? Financially, emotionally, resource-wise? Like, they're just going to cost us more than we're ever going to give. You, you want to be great? Serve. It's hard to do. It's easy to say in practice. It's hard to do in reality because it's going to cost you something. We're going to see that as a theme. Well, and then we get into this the way we interact with those who are significantly different from us. This is the part where he talks about, hey, they were casting out demons, and we've never seen these guys. And well, What are they doing? Like, they didn't dress like us, and they didn't use the right. They, they were using different stuff. And, whoa, hold on. We need to control this thing. Jesus, bring it together. And what's he say? He's like, let, let them go. They're not against us. They'll, they'll force. They'll see. God, he, he's essentially saying, I'm doing stuff you don't understand. There's stuff going on out there that I'm involved in that you don't understand. That's not my response to this. That's not my natural. My natural response is when I see somebody doing something, yeah, I'm like, hmm. No. Stop it. Or dismiss them. It's more, it's just like, don't pay, don't pay any attention to them, folks. Look over here. I got, I got what you need right here. Don't pay any attention to the way that guy's doing that over here. I got the way. Come buy what I'm selling. Don't buy what they're selling because I don't know, I don't know what that's going to lead to with that, right? And we become, we become controlling, manipulative. We become, um, we want to, we want to shrink things down where we can get ahead. You better understand that you're not the one in control here, son. Jesus talks to me sometimes. <laughs> says there's stuff going on here you don't understand I've got this why don't you instead be a little bit curious why don't you instead be a little bit more accommodating why don't instead you kind of step down a few steps and let them step up a few steps and see what see what happens <laughs> 
You want to be great, do that. Don't go drawing lines and throwing stones and doing stuff like that. Um, Mako Fujimura, who is my one of my favorite contemporary artists, and he has a he has a whole um, he writes about art and faith, and he talks a lot about culture care, about how as Christians we are called to care for culture, to shape it with it. If you've never seen his artwork or read his books, they're they're astounding, they're beautiful. But he said this, he said, it's good to remember that culture care assumes abundance of options and care for all sides of issues being tossed about. In contrast, culture war mindsets create false binaries to scapegoat and demonize the other, jumping to conclusions rather than listening. Greatness doesn't scapegoat. Greatness doesn't demonize. Real, isn't it? Or am I the only one? Am I the only one tempted to do that? To get drawn into that scapegoating, that othering, that demonizing. That. Now listen, don't hear me saying you don't call out what's wrong. Don't hear me saying you don't, you don't fight for what's right. But remember, especially now, and and I truly believe this, that while we physically act within a physical world, other people are not our enemies. They're not the opponent. They They may disagree. We may disagree with them strongly. We may need to oppose them in the physical space here. But ultimately, that's not who we fight against. That is That is being suckered into a fight that will never win. And if we do win, it'll be worse for us with that. So that's what he's, I think he's talking about that. And I think he's talking, he, he gives some of the most vivid words that Jesus uses in the whole Bible is about this, is about don't give the wrong impression that leads others astray. Don't misrepresent the kingdom in a way that keeps others out of it. It's better that you walked in with an eye patch, a peg leg, and a hook on one hand. Kind of like a pirate. That's cool. He wasn't saying be cool like a pirate. He was just saying it's better to lose some stuff than to than to have accumulated this power for yourself and caused others to go astray with that. And he gives his sternest one of his sternest warnings in the whole the Bible with that. So that's you know we talk about children, we talk about those that are others than us, and then we the third way is the way we interact with those who don't hold power. And he uses divorce here. And this, we talked a lot about this in the teaching team this, uh, this week. Because this taken in isolation has probably been one of the most abused scriptures in all of the Bible. Are these, these teachings about Jesus about divorce here. We take them as a proscriptive model that define once and for all what divorce is supposed to be about and who can get it and who shouldn't from this thing. Now, I'm not saying there aren't some principles there that we need to heed. But the biggest thing that Jesus is doing here is he is returning power to women, is what he's doing here. When he said, you can, you can write her a, a certificate of divorce, that was a one-way street. Only a man could write a certificate of divorce to the woman. And he could do it for practically any reason. The woman could never write a certificate of divorce to the man. 
And Jesus is even sarcastically bringing that to light when he says, if she divorces her husband, then she commits adultery. He's not saying that like it's an equal thing. Hey, if the man divorces the woman and goes and marries another, he's committed divorce. And on the other side of the scale, it's equally bad if the woman, if the woman divorces her husband and goes married. No, he's saying, hey, if the man divorces a woman and goes off, he commits adultery. Like the woman could ever do that? situation. And to balance that power equity, he's calling the men to fulfill their obligations so that the woman would This is what greatness looks like. This is what he's saying greatness looks like. Is those of us who have power and are in relationships with people who don't is we step up to fulfill those obligations and create ways for them to share that. We create an environment where that power is And this is really hard in the society that we live in. Because any one of us individually, we only have so much of the world. But we do have some. That's the thing. Is we do have some individually, but we have more than I think we do. And this is particularly important when we think about what do you think? So let's go back to the start of the story and we'll wrap things up here. Let's go back to the start of the story. He said, he told, he asked the disciples, what were y'all talking about? He said, well, we were talking about who was going to be the greatest. What, how do you think that that discussion went? Hey, come on, guys. I, I mean, I know he called us all, but 
I've been here since the start. You know, I'm a, I'm always the one who's like in front of the line. Like, I'm the heir apparent, right? You think there was any like, hey, you know, when Jesus comes into His kingdom, we're going to teach those Romans something. I'm going to be the one that goes out there and kicks butt and takes name. Like you're going to see who's great. Yeah, exactly. You're going to see who's great when this thing starts to really get rolling. You're going to watch that, right? And then someone else is like, hey, you know, um, you guys, are, you're doing this great stuff, but you got to understand, I hold the purse strings here. Like it's, it's finances that make this thing going, and I am the treasurer of this whole group, so I'm the one financing you. We know how that ended up. Um. Right? It's, it's not hard to imagine the criterion they were using to discuss who was going to be greatest when Jesus says all this. And that's what it's. And it helps me be patient with myself and give grace to myself when I imagine that their answer, their response to Jesus' teaching and showing and pulling the children together, that their answer was, huh? What? What is he doing? What is he talking about? Like, I ask him about greatness. He's talking about doing children's ministry. I wanted to know if I was better than Simon. He's talking about divorce. Like, I, because we see that. We see that throughout Scripture. We see that after Jesus dies and, and, and raise, is raised and ascends into heaven in the church we read about in the New Testament, is that they're still trying to figure this stuff out. The, new, the rest of the New Testament, the letters, the epistles, the thing, is, is, are the apostles who are still working it through themselves definitely trying to teach the church because it's hard to get, y'all. It's just hard to get. Well, I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. Um, and I want to say this. What we believe is proved by what we are willing to give up. Proved by what we're willing to give up. The thing about biblical justice is that it is never performative. It's not just hashtag. Jesus pulls no punches when he says it's better for us to lose a part of our body than deny practicing radical care for others. That's why at Grace Church, we, we continually remind ourselves of this idea of belong, become, believe. Is it starts with belonging. It starts with this hospitality. It starts with this, this inclusion. Because that is where all power starts. Power starts from being part of something. It starts from belonging. Power starts from that sense of, oh, I can breathe here. I am loved here. I am accepted here. 
I know the people that I'm with here. We may not agree on everything. We may not like each other at times, but, but I'm part of that. That's why we start with belonging. That's why we practice radical hospitality here in, in radical inclusion that everybody here has a seat at the table. And then we understand that that practice of becoming is, is, that, is that overcoming of all those culture, enculturated ideas and all the ways that the world tries to conform us to its image. We practice resistance of that. By being part of the church, living our lives the way we do, we are practicing resistance against those lies, those things that end in death and enslavement and destruction. And finally, this is what we confess. I'm confessing it now, but it also informs my confession. When we pray the prayer, we are praying words. Most of the time, y'all, my prayers are aspirational. It's what I want to believe. It's what I want to believe. So I'm practicing them, saying them with them. Anyway, um, we have our table here. I can't wait to talk about pickles again. Um, I don't know if you were told why pickles were on the communion table. Um, go look at the word baptizo with it. Um, it'll, you'll, Catherine, you'll find it fascinating. It's great. But the idea of baptism is different than being washed. Okay? Washing is, is, is just a superficial thing. Baptizo, which is closer to pickling in the Greek, means a change in our very substance. So we come to the table remembering our baptizo, our pickling in Jesus. Um, with that, that we are being changed more and more into the likeness of God. Our table is open to everyone. Jesus is just really, really loose in the rules on this. He's like everybody, poor, lame, blind, leper, whatever, come on. Y'all just, y'all come on. That's our table. Y'all come on with that. It's a good time to pray. It's a good time to reflect. It's a good time to write something down if something's spoken to you. Don't believe me just because I have the microphone, okay? Do not take it on my authority. Take it on the Word's authority. Wrestle with it. Study it. Take it apart. Figure it out. And thanks for being here. Thank you for listening to Grace Church of Northwest Arkansas podcast. You can find more about us online at gracechurchmwa.org. Grace and peace.